Well, good morning, church. It's great to be back with you all this time, visit number two. Uh, My wife and uh, daughter are here today. Ashley is sitting right over here, and Charlotte is in the nursery, praise the Lord. Uh, Thank you so much for your welcome to us yesterday and the time that we got to spend with you all. It was a blessing to us, and uh, I look forward to getting to know more of you uh, later on. Last time I was here, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And this week, we're going to finish Ephesians chapter 2. So if you remember, in verses 1 through 10, we learned all about the gospel. Sin leads to death in verses uh, 1 through 3. We weren't just spiritually sick, but we were spiritually dead because of sin. We were in a sorry state. But verses 4 through 7 contain the good news that Jesus Christ leads to life. Even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. We've been united with Christ by the Holy Spirit, and this is the amazing grace of the gospel. But that wasn't the end of the passage. Verses 8 through 10 uh, are all about the grace of God and how it leads to a life lived in light of the grace of God. Grace leads to good works. Paul concludes the passage by saying that we are God's workmanship created for good works. Now, this whole passage, verses 1 through 10, is amazing. And that's why I chose it, right? The reason I selected the passage was because it was all about the gospel. Uh, But if that was everything that Paul had to say to the Ephesians, the book would end there. So it's not. And and that's not all, all he has to say. It keeps going. And in the rest of chapter 2, Paul emphasizes the new community that God has created around the gospel. Notice how he says in verse 10, we are his workmanship. We individually and corporately. How can a church like Lake Morton Community Church walk in the good works the Lord has created for them to do without unity? Right? That's an important question. And that's where Paul turns his focus in verses 11 through 22. So let's stand and read the word of God together. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Please be seated. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, we pray that we would conform our lives to your word, that whatever is here, you would make it very clear in our hearts and we would live according, accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. So after clearly explaining the gospel in the first part of the chapter, Paul reminds the Ephesians of the new community God created. He shows them what they once were, what Jesus has done, and what they have now become. So first, what they once were. They were alienated from God. On Paul's missionary journeys, he spent a lot of time in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And uh, his method every time was to bring the gospel to the synagogues of the Jews first and then go and preach to the Gentiles if and when the Jews rejected the gospel and the Gentiles were non-Jewish people. And we can see this play out really clearly in Acts 13 and 14. Every city Paul and Barnabas visits follows this cycle. Uh, they go to Iconium and they're kicked out and so they go to the next city and they're kicked out and then on and on. So it's important to understand that in Asia Minor, there were a lot of Gentile Christians, and that's where Ephesus is. And that might not seem like a very big deal to us. Maybe some people in this room have a little bit of Jewish heritage, but more than likely, most of us would be considered Gentiles. And in verse 11, Paul gets into the name that Jews used for the Gentiles. He said that the Jews called them the uncircumcision. Paul's reminding these Gentiles, these Gentile believers, that they were once cut off from access to the one true God of the universe. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and the Jewish people as a whole. It was a sign that he had given them to show the rest of the world that they were different, they were set apart, they were holy. And so circumcision was kind of a, a summary, a summary statement of the whole law, and it was the center of Jewish identity. And so in the mind of the first century Jew, they were God's people, the circumcised, and the rest of the world were the uncircumcised. It didn't matter what nation other people were from or whatever, there were the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And let me tell you this, that was true. That was true. God specifically chose one people out of all of the nations of the world to be his people. They were supposed to be an example to the rest of the world on, on how to live and how to worship God. And the hope was that through their example, other people would come in. Now, it was very rare that people would come in because it required them leaving their national allegiance and submitting to the whole law of the temple, and circumcision. And so not many people did. In verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, we read about how everybody is dead in their trespasses. Right? We were following Satan. We were doing what we wanted. We were children of wrath. 
So in sin, everyone, Jew and Gentile, is separated from God. But Gentiles had a twofold separation. Not only was that true of them, that they were dead in their sin, but they were outside of the covenant. They were outside of the covenant community. Now, covenant is a really important word, and I'm going to return to it in a bit. But for now, I want you to, I want you to really understand how hopeless it was for Gentile unbelievers before Christ. Paul even makes a list here. They were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. They were without hope and without God in the world. Okay, so individually, their sin made them dead and unable to come to God outside of his grace. And corporately, they weren't God's people. And after all of that, I think it's very true what Paul says here, they were without hope. There was no way they could come to God. But why does he bring this up? Why does Paul want to remind the Gentiles of what they once were? Well, this is one of the most important topics in the New Testament. As you, as you read through, almost every letter of Paul's touches on this. The idea of Gentile Christians was really weird. How could Gentiles be saved by the Jewish Messiah? And a lot of theological thought was, was poured into this question. So major portions of the book of Romans deal with this. Paul's letters to the Galatians and the Colossians deal with this. Large portions of the book of Acts deal with this. And of course, the book of Ephesians. And we might gloss over it and forget about that. But the fact that Gentiles could be saved by Jesus Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit was kind of mind-boggling. So, Paul wants to show the Gentiles that they're no longer alienated. They're no longer alienated from God and they're no longer alienated from the rest of the people of God. That was a really big deal. There were factions in the church at this time who believed that Gentiles had to first become Jews in order to worship Christ. And later on, there will be factions in the church who want to get rid of any scent of Judaism altogether. So how is it that these two distinct people groups, Jews and Gentiles, can come together and be considered one people the circumcision and the uncircumcision. It's only through an act of God. In verses 13 through 17, Paul shifts his focus to this great unifying act. So he's shown us what they once were, alienated. And now he's going to remind them of second, what Jesus has done. Jesus brought peace to these groups through his blood. Let's reread verses 13 through 17 together. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, 
so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ Jesus. And what else could have possibly accomplished this? Only the blood of Christ could have reconciled to God a people who were alienated from him, outside of the covenant. It was only through the death of Christ that, that we, Gentiles, not members of the covenant community of Israel, could approach the throne of grace. Isn't that mind-boggling? Christ didn't just die for sin. He died for our reconciliation as a people. And this aspect of God's grace is often ignored or de-emphasized. God did not have to open up the covenant community to Gentiles. He did not have to save you. You were not owed that. He didn't have to reconcile us to him through Christ. If Jesus had come to earth and died on the cross only for the Jews who would believe in him, this would have been totally within his right he was the Jewish Messiah, but God is good, and he loved you, and he made a way for you and for me, Gentiles, to be reconciled to him. And this should blow us away. This should cause us to worship. We don't deserve to even be in the conversation about salvation. And yet here we are. This section starts... Paul's great discussion about peace. In verse 14, we're told this. For he himself is our peace. I want to meditate on that statement for a minute. Paul doesn't say Jesus brought peace or that Jesus proclaimed peace or that Jesus made peace. All of that is true. But he says Jesus is peace himself. The person of Christ is peace. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 gives four names for the coming Messiah. They're known well. We talk about them at Christmas. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In verse 7 of chapter 9 of Isaiah says, Of the increase of his government... And of peace, there will be no end. Do you want to know what peace is? It's Jesus Christ. Peace is a person. So it's no wonder that Jesus could say so boldly and so wonderfully in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus. He is our peace. Praise the Lord. Amen. That's just the first phrase of verse 14. We better get going. Paul says that this Jesus, our peace, has done two things. First, Paul says he has made us both one, talking about Jews and Gentiles. 
And second, he says, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What's Paul referring to here? Well, we'd be making a little bit of an interpretive mistake if we said that these two things are talking about our relationship with God. Now, it's true that Jesus has reconciled us to the Father, and there's no longer separation or a dividing wall between us and God because of his blood. That is true. But the right understanding of verse 14 is that Jesus, our peace, has broken the the dividing wall that stood between Jews and Gentiles, and therefore between all people. Through the peace that we share in Christ, we are now one family. How does Jesus do this? Verse 15 says, He did it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Okay, let's take a breath for a second. Sometimes Paul has really long run-on sentences that are a bit hard to track with. This is one of them, so let's recap. Let's make sure we're really understanding what's happening. Jesus is our peace. That's how he starts. And as our peace, he has made Jews and Gentiles one people by breaking down the dividing wall that stood between us. And that dividing wall was the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Are we all on the same page? Jesus fulfilled this law in his life, death, and resurrection, as he said he would in Matthew 5. And by doing so, he rendered it null and void. That's what abolish means in this context. It's a legal term. The law that Paul is talking about refers to those laws that made Israel separate from the rest of the world. Sometimes this is known as the ceremonial law. So those would be like the dietary restrictions, the dress code, temple purity laws, and most importantly for our conversation, circumcision. All of these things have been abolished or made void or made ineffective through the work of Christ as things that create separation. Does that make sense? The law, the ceremonial law, no longer distinguishes peoples as ways of approaching God. We now have access through one person, Jesus Christ, who is our peace. These ceremonial laws were part of the covenant that God made with the people of Israel at Sinai. And this covenant is called the Mosaic Covenant because Moses was the mediator. But now Jesus has made a new covenant and he is the new mediator. He did this through his death and resurrection. So the old Mosaic covenant could never deal with sin internally. Now, if you read through the book of Hebrews, it talks about this at great length. It dealt with outward cleanliness. But Jesus, once and for all, walked into the throne room in heaven and made the sacrifice of his blood on the altar before God. So cleansing us internally, dealing with sin once and for all, This is the new covenant, and he is our high priest. Chapter 9, verse 15 of the book of Hebrews says, Christ, therefore, is the new mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Who is called? Us. 
all peoples, Jews and Gentiles together. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus has accomplished it for us, all of it. Gentiles are now welcome. There is a new covenant. We are one people. And he did this through his blood. And this new covenant is, is for all peoples. That's amazing. Through the peace of Christ, Jews and Gentiles can come together to make one people of God. Wow. That's an amazing work. And Paul says that Christ does this that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. There's no longer two men, Gentiles and Jews. There's one peaceful man, the church. Praise the Lord. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter what your race is or your culture. You can come to Jesus Christ and to each other. And so Lake Morton Community Church can be made up of all peoples. Jesus didn't just take care of the vertical relationship between us individually and God. Praise the Lord, he did, or else we'd be in trouble. But he also made peace horizontally between everybody in this room. Any dividing wall of hostility that there was before Christ is abolished in his blood. Amen? Praise the Lord. And he summarizes this thought beautifully in verse 16. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body, that is his body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the hostility between us and God is gone in the cross of Jesus Christ. The hostility between all peoples is gone through the cross of Jesus Christ. The hostility between any group is killed, to use his word. The vertical and the horizontal are dealt with. Praise the Lord. So Paul can say that Jesus came to preach peace to those who are far off, the Gentiles, and to preach peace to those who are near, the Jews. The same peace. And again, this is amazing grace. We get to enjoy this. The physical differences between Jews and Gentiles that the law put in place are no longer significant dividing walls between us. If you want to have an eternal relationship with God, it is only through Jesus Christ that that's possible for all people. So there can now be Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and we all have access to the Father through our one high priest, Jesus Christ. In chapter 3 of the book of Galatians, Paul says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And this is what Jesus did for us. He didn't just die for our sins. He died to mend our broken relationship with God and with others. When Adam sinned in the garden, the first sin, their relationship with God was broken. But their interpersonal relationships with each other were broken as well. All human relationships are now marked by sin. And we sin against each other all the time. If we just look at the news, probably today, we can see several examples of this. War, oppression, injustice, slander, deception, unbridled violence. And these are all common occurrences, so common we're no longer surprised by them. The capacity for human beings to sin against each other is seemingly endless. The first sin in Scripture reveals the human desire to be their own God. But the second sin recorded in Scripture reveals the human desire to assert themselves over anyone else. Both are pride. Cain killed Abel. Human relationships are broken, but Jesus is our peace. Even two groups as different and, and, and as distinct as the Jews and the Gentiles are made into one people by the peace that Jesus brings through his blood. So my question to you, in light of all of this, does Lake Morton Community Church reflect the peace that was brought and bought by the blood of Christ? Does your life individually reflect the peace that was bought by Christ on the cross. If we claim to love Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, how can we be a people who are marked by strife and enmity, both in the church here and in our own personal lives? So do you have someone you need to apologize to? Is there someone here this morning that you have to forgive? Jesus Christ has killed the hostility between us, so why do we often raise that dead hostility back to life? We do it a lot. We were once alienated from God, but Jesus brought peace through his blood. Praise the Lord, because we cannot do that on our own. And he's creating something new now. So third, Paul reminds the Ephesians of what they have become. They've become God's dwelling place. Let's look again at verses 18 through 22. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And these verses are all about this new community, the church. God has taken people who were once enemies with God and with each other, and he has granted them access to himself through the Holy Spirit, 
who indwells them mutually, no matter their nationality or race or culture. What does this mean for us who are far off, the Gentiles? Well, we're no longer strangers and aliens. We are citizens, saints, and members of the household of God. All three of these statements are jam-packed with meaning. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we no longer find ourselves outside of the covenant community. There is a new covenant in Jesus Christ who reigns over all things. He is the king. Citizenship was a really big deal in the Roman Empire. If you were a citizen, you enjoyed special privileges that no one else would enjoy. You had access to the emperor, for instance. Paul claims that right when he is arrested and he's delivered to Rome. You can't be taxed in certain ways. You couldn't be hung on a cross. So Paul is taking that language of citizenship and applying it to us, those of us who are in the kingdom of God. We now enjoy special privileges. We have access to the Father directly through the work of Christ. We are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. We have a purpose and a mission from God to fulfill. We have a future and a hope to look forward to. I mean, we enjoy countless benefits when we belong to this kingdom. It's a great thing to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Amen? Are you a citizen? We're also saints. Did you know you were a saint? In the Old Testament, this word was used to talk about people who were set apart. And that's what we are now in Christ. We are set apart, holy ones, set apart for the work of God that he has placed for us. Are you a saint? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are. You don't have to do certain works or certain miracles in order to get that title. You are one today. Are you? And finally, we're members of the household of God. Now that's a powerful metaphor. To be a member of someone's household in the first century meant that that person was directly responsible for your well-being. It implies a familial bond. And indeed, elsewhere, we are called children of God. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We aren't just guests in God's household. We are family members. Are you a family member? And the emphasis here is that we're family members together brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul shifts his metaphor now to that of a building. God is the architect of this building, and we are the building materials. We're built together on God's revelation, the apostles and the prophets. And those two groups, the apostles and prophets, summarize all of Scripture. But God's greatest revelation, Jesus Christ, is the cornerstone He carries the weight of the whole building. Everything depends upon him. And Christ is dependable. He is a dependable cornerstone. But this building isn't just a normal structure. It's not an office building. It's not a simple house. This building is God's temple. We, as God's people, are together 
being built up into the dwelling place of God. In 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And it's never been rebuilt. It was a very sad thing. Rome flattened it. There is still an arch that stands in Rome today celebrating the sacking of Jerusalem. But God didn't need that temple anymore. He has his church as his temple. Did you know that right now, God dwells with us? We are being built up into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. That's amazing to think about. We are told elsewhere in Scripture that our bodies, you've heard this, our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, right? That's true, that's beautiful, that's good. But the church, right here, right now, in this place, at this time, is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is true and beautiful. In a special, unique way, the Holy Spirit dwells with us right here and right now. The gathering of the church is a thing that we should not put off. That's why we're told that in Hebrews. Don't neglect the gathering of believers because this is a place of the Holy Spirit, a unique place. You don't get this elsewhere. You don't get this at home alone. It's only here. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but so is everybody else in this room. And the gifts that the Holy Spirit uses through them blesses you in a way you could never experience anywhere else. That's why we can't neglect the church, the local church, Lake Morton Community Church. It is special because of the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. I'm not talking about a physical structure, as beautiful as this is. I'm talking about us, the people gathered in one place at one time. That's a high calling. How horrible would it be if we stopped caring about God's dwelling place? Again, not the structure, but us together. How horrible would it be if your relationships with other members of this church broke down because of some hostility? Horrible. God has done the work to bring us together through Christ, who is our peace. He has granted us access to him. He has called us citizens and saints and members of his house. Let's live up to that. Amen? Much of the rest of the letter deals with exactly how we're supposed to live up to this calling of unity in the Holy Spirit. So chapter 4 starts like this. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice the emphasis, unity, oneness. This is exactly what the church is supposed to look like, one people, united in love, walking in humility and patience with one another, bearing with one another, and eager 
to maintain unity in the spirit. Not doing it begrudgingly, but desiring to do it. There's always work to be done on this front. I'm excited to get to know Lake Morton Community Church more, but I guarantee there is work to be done in loving one another, as there is in every church. Unity is difficult, but it is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to rely upon the peace of Christ and be peacemakers like our God. Is there peace that you need to seek out today? Specific peace. Maybe you need to bring peace to your family through forgiveness and mercy between you and your wife or husband, you and your children. Maybe you need to bring peace to another member of this church who you have hurt and that you have been avoiding. Maybe you need to bring peace to a member of this church who has hurt you and that you need to forgive. Maybe there's someone at work that you have not done a very good job of being peaceful toward, being the peace of Christ for. Or maybe there's no peace between you and God today. You can have peace. That can be yours. All that we've talked about, being members of this new covenant community, this wonderful expression, saints and members of the household of God, that can be true of you. Christ died for sin on the cross, and he was raised back to life, and he brings peace to all who come to him. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light, so repent, turn away from your sin, and believe the gospel that Jesus Christ died for your sin, was raised to life, and is now your peace between you and God and everyone else. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our peace. Father, I pray that you would impress on people in this room areas in their life where they need to be peacemakers like you are a peacemaker. Where is it, Lord? Is it in their families? Is it in their marriage? Is it at work? Is it in this church? Lord, you have called us to a high calling as a church. You have done a great work in us. Father, we pray that we would live up to what you want us to be. Only through the power of the Spirit can we possibly do this. And so, Lord, we rely upon that today. Spirit, I pray that you would impress on people this morning what it is that they need to do in order to live out this call. Maybe they need to stop sitting on the sidelines and get involved with a particular ministry. Maybe they need to step back and bring others up with them. Whatever it might be, Lord, I pray that Lake Morton Community Church would be a place where your peace is found. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.